You're listening to Season 5 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 5.1, Passing the Torch, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and during the break I was visited by three horrid specters. The ghosts of Gundam past, present, and future. And I'm Nina, new to SD Olympics, and my event would be, uh, some kind of cooking competition? Due to some holiday travel-related disruptions and our desire to get this episode out to you sometime near when we originally promised it, Nina was forced to record several sections on the road, and as a result you are going to notice some distinctly different audio quality in a few places in this episode. I do apologize for any dissonance you experience as a result. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 601 patrons and subscribers. Yes, we did it! Thank you all for getting us to another milestone, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Sammy T, MJJ, The Draconic Dak, Adam N, Nick M, Stephen W, Freddie K, Matthew M, Clay C, Chris B, Alex D, Red D, Miles RL, and Claire S. This podcast would not be possible without your support. 2022 is upon us. Happy New Year! Wishing you all a better year than the last, and looking forward to our first non-Tomino Gundam, our first OVA, and a lot of other exciting firsts for Mobile Suit Breakdown. A quick update. A few of you have reached out for more information about the pin promotion. This year, the promo helped us add 104 new patrons, and 15 existing patrons upped their pledges. 536 people will be receiving the Year 3 pin, and I am very excited to get them out to you. But with so many pins going out, the prep takes longer and is a bit more complicated than in previous years. First up, if you're eligible, please check your email and spam folder. Over 100 patrons did not provide a mailing address, and if that's the case for you, I've reached out and asked for that information. Secondly, pins will probably go out in waves, but my goal is to mail all of them by the end of January. I'll keep you posted on the status of the mailing and when you can expect to receive yours. Thank you for your patience. Hello again. Sorry for the longer than expected break between seasons, but between getting ready for the new season and the winter holidays here in the US and everything else that's happened in the last month, we just ran out of time. But we're back now and eager to get into it. This season, we are going to cover the beloved Gundam side story, Kiro Senshi Gundamu 0080 Pocketo no Naka no Senso, or Mobile Suit Gundam 0080, War in the Pocket. 
With the movie behind us, we are back to the usual MSB format, covering one episode per week in its entirety with research, analysis, and occasional humor. There will not be a radio drama this season. As much as I love making them, they just take too much work, and we have other things that we need to focus on right now. This week we're going to do our usual episode one things. Nina has an update on what happened during the one year between March 12th, 1988, when Char's counterattack hit theaters, and March 25th, 1989, when the first episode of War in the Pocket went on sale. Plus, Nina has some background on the history of direct-to-video anime, commonly called OVAs, short for Original Video Animation, or OAVs, short for Original Animated Video, Direct-to-video anime had already emerged alongside home video technology in the mid-80s, and in the late 80s, after three TV shows and four movies, the mighty Gundam franchise decided to dip its toes into the OVA pool. It would continue to do so for decades to come. War in the Pocket, the main subject of this season, is commonly cited as Gundam's very first OVA, but that's not quite accurate. So, before we return to the year UC-80 and this much-anticipated one-year war-era side story, we need to fulfill our mandate of covering all of Gundam in order by covering the real first OVA. SD Gundam Mark I Part 3 This third SD short is still considered uh, a piece of Part 1. It is called SD Olympiku, or SD Olympics, Stadiamu. Stadium colored with laughter. Like the other SD shorts in SD Gundam Mark I, SD Olympics was directed by Sekita Osamu, a veteran episode director who had already worked in that capacity on First Gundam, Zeta, and Double Zeta. It was written by Hoshiyama Hiroyuki, whose extensive list of writing credits includes Dirty Pair and the first two parts of Megazone 2 3, but most importantly, for our purposes, he wrote 11 episodes of First Gundam including the first episode, the one where Amuro meets his mother again, and the final two episodes. It is the first ever SD Olympics, Federation vs. Xeon. The teams are arrayed for the opening ceremony, the stands are full of spectators, and the Gundam lights the Olympic cauldron and itself. The commentators are Judo and a very bored-looking first Gundam-era Char. In fact, he only wakes up from his nap to cheer for Zeon in the first event, the 100-meter race in track, and Judo has to remind him commentators are supposed to be unbiased. A mass of women and girl characters line the stands cheering for Garma. The starting pistol is more like a cannon, and all the human contestants are stunned motionless or blasted away. Only the Kubele gets a good start, but it is suddenly overtaken by Pudu, who wasn't even supposed to be running. Pudu, 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 Pudu. In the second heat, the favorite, the Double Zeta Gundam, is disqualified when it fires its beam cannon and flies backward into a wall. Next, the 200-ton ball throw. The Marasai has trouble when the ball mobile suit it throws uses its weapon to knock itself to the ground. The Zeta Gundam throws a more cooperative Haro, but is disqualified when the Haro lands in the stands, destroying part of the stadium. 
The survival marathon gets off to a good if boring start and the commentators cut to rhythmic gymnastics. First up, Sela, performing with a haro instead of one of the traditional props, two cheers from the entirely male crowd. Despite the elegant use of its tentacle-like weapons as ribbons, her opponent, the Agugai, is booed and showered with junk from the stands. From there, it's on to the women's 100-meter freestyle and swimming, where the single mobile suit competitor, Adam, cannonballs into the pool, causing huge waves to fling the other competitors out and flood the stands. The Dom walks to the end of the pool. Checking in on the marathon, two mobile suits on treads are stuck on desert dunes, while the rest of the group reach a rocky slope and have to tunnel their way through. Each uses a different method, but it's going to take them a while regardless. Cut to Kai in the men's triple jump. Despite losing his shorts mid-jump and landing face first, he sets a new record. Back at the marathon, getting through the obstacle wipes out many competitors, leaving only the Gundam and the Zaku to face the last obstacle, a deep ravine with no clear way to cross. Both are helped by warships, and as they fly to the other side, the Zaku shoots at their opponent. Mobile suits and ships wind up flying off into space, fighting around a nearby colony, and the closing ceremonies begin with the marathon still unfinished. SD Olympics Commissioner Degwinzabi begins to speak, only for the Zaku and the Gundam to crash land at the finish line. A tie! The stadium erupts with laughter, a colony crashes to the city, and the short ends with a pan of the characters and mobile suits in the crumbling ruins of the Olympic Stadium. We call this one SD Gundam Mark I Part Three, but that's an anachronistic title. At this point, it was just SD Gundam Part Three, and it was first published on May 25th, 1988 on home video. It was released with the two prior theatrical SD shorts that we covered during season four, and it served as a kind of a bonus to encourage fans who we can assume had already watched the other shorts in the theater to buy this pricey home video version. This short is clearly in reference to the 1988 Summer Olympics, which were held in Seoul, South Korea, only the second games to be held in Asia after the Tokyo Olympics of 1964. This was seen as a victory of sorts for South Korea against a rival Japan, since their bid was against the Japanese city of Nagoya. It's considered the last games of the Cold War, since the Soviet Union and a divided East and West Germany did not exist by the time of the 1992 Olympic Games. It's weird that in four years, two countries ceased to exist. <laughs> the 88 Games also had the widest participation in over a decade, since there were fewer boycotts than the previous three. South Korea was also considered to be the first quote-unquote developing country to host the Games. 35 years after the Korean War and after a decade of political unrest. South Korea's international image was reshaped by hosting, quote, from a poor war-stricken and divided country to a rising economy open to international cooperation. Take it with a big grain of salt because it's from the International Olympic Committee website, 
but the games were a big boost to tourism for the country, and among other things, introduced a lot of foreigners and foreign markets to kimchi. <laughs> While there was a strong antipathy and rivalry towards Japan, there was also a desire to replicate Japan's post-war economic success and to use the Olympics in the same way Japan had, to mark a re-emergence onto the world stage to demonstrate progress. I made a pretty silly mistake preparing for this, which is that I assumed, without checking, that the short was made after the Olympics were over. But as Tom said, the short released in May, and the Olympics weren't until October. <laughs> so, uh, I found out a lot about the 88 Olympics, much of which feels relevant, but the short can't possibly be referring to it because it hadn't happened yet. I'm going to leave a lot of it in because it's interesting, but it's all a weird coincidence rather than direct inspiration. The Anime News Network page for this SD short claims it's inspired by the Hanna-Barbera animated comedy series Laugh Olympics. This show ran for two seasons, the second called Scooby's All-Stars, as part of the Saturday morning block of cartoons from 1977 to 1979. It was modeled on the Olympics, but also on the ABC game show Battle of the Network Stars, the original run of which pitted stars from various TV networks against each other in a series of sporting events, and ran from 1976 to 1988. Hanna-Barbera cartoons had been exported to Japan since the late 50s and were dubbed into Japanese by, I think, Toei. As what we'll call research for this segment, I watched a couple of these uh, Hanna-Barbera Laugh Olympics shorts, and the inspiration is pretty easy to see. The approach to sort of Olympic-esque, wacky sporting events, the division between the sort of good guy team and the evil team, and the level of humor is about the same. I will also point out that although we haven't gotten there yet, there is an SD short in the future that is not allowed to be published on account of being entirely too much of a ripoff of a different Hanna-Barbera short. So, you know. I mostly really enjoyed this short. There's some gross sexist stuff in it, as has been pretty consistent with them, but otherwise good silly fun. I would say, yeah, good silly fun for the most part. I agree about the gross sexist stuff, and also a lot of that is, like, made the more gross by how weird it is. Like, Char perving on his sister. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there, yeah. Um, in a way, it felt like this one had less to say than the prior two shorts we covered. Like, it is just kind of goofy, silly riffing on the Olympics. In the opening ceremonies, the contrast between the really tiny Federation delegation and huge Xeon delegation was very funny as a visual gag, uh, and I assume is in reference to the vast number of mobile suits that Xeon gets. Like, the enemies get so many cool mobile suits. I think that's true. Also, in Laugh Olympics, I think the Rotten Rascals is, is what the bad guy team is called, um, and I think they're usually, there are more of them, so... I think that's continuing the reference. Although I was looking at this picture of the Xeon team lineup and there are some mobile suits in there that don't belong there. The DJ is in there. The Methus is in there. The Nemo is in there. But it's funnier if that group is humongous. No, you're right. It is funny. 
I was going to say that I wasn't going to list all the characters in mobile suits in that sequence because it is easily dozens. It is fun to watch and see how many you recognize. I think I could probably identify all of them, but I'm not going to try to do that on air. I would be as bored as Char watching these Olympics. (laughs) At least you're less biased. I did notice a few characters who I don't think were in the first two shorts, including Mondo, Bicha, Ino, Zeta-era Kaishiden, Shintankum, and Torres. Yeah. Uh, To my delight, Kai is both in the stands and competing. But it's different eras of Kai. (laughs) The Kai in the stands is Zeta-Kai. Well, and if you look at the pan over the Xeon officers... Mondo and Bicha, I think, are in there, but wearing Xeon uniforms. Or at least very suspicious doppelgangers. They were briefly on the Xeon side. It's true. That is a thing that happened. Maybe they appear on both sides. And then there were two things about the lighting of the cauldron by the Gundam. First, when the Gundam accidentally lights itself on fire, it's a pun on the line spoken by the narrator, which uses the word moeru, which can mean the figurative, to get fired up, to burn with passion, anger, ambition, and gets used a lot for competitors. Uh, Or it can literally mean to burn. And in an eerie bit of premonition, uh, the 1988 Olympics were apparently the last to release live doves because many of the doves were killed when they perched on the edges of the Olympic cauldron and did not fly away when the cauldron was lit. Ah. Uh, Burnt to a crisp. Those poor doves. <laughs> to be fair to the torchbearers who lit the cauldron, they really couldn't see what was going on up there. They, they had to reach up over their heads to light it. This incident still makes lists of weirdest things to happen at the Olympics. Uh, Then in the stands, we have Bright sitting between Emery and Mirai. (laughs) And Woody is there, too, with Matilda. Yes, Woody and Matilda looking very cuddly. Hi, I'm Woody. Garma takes the field, and his popularity with women and girl fans is pretty obviously echoed by all the characters cheering for him, which is just a who's who of women and girl Gundam characters. Although there are some men in the back, including Glemmy. Uh, And then afterwards, Char kind of pouts, which I assume is in pseudo-rivalry since he's another character popular with women fans. Uh, Of the two announcers, Char is constantly portrayed as kind of checked out and bored. I could not find any apparent reason for that or reference they might be making uh, other than that he's just very biased. (laughs) Before the first race, Judo asks, will someone break Ben Johnson's record? Ben Johnson is a Canadian runner who held the world record for the 100-meter sprint. At the 88 Games, he won gold, setting a new world record of 9.79 seconds, only to be disqualified later when performance-enhancing drugs were found in his system. Johnson alleged that he'd been sabotaged, that he'd been drugged. He had something of an ongoing rivalry with American track athlete Carl Lewis, Once he started beating Lewis in races, Lewis started talking about how much doping there was in their sport and what a problem doping was in track. Uh, And Johnson later admitted to steroid use, but still contended, you know, athletes knew how to taper off before testing and that the steroid found in his system at the Olympics was not one that he used. 
So there's speculation that a friend and teammate of Lewis's who was in the testing room may have drugged Johnson. And in that same race, six of the eight finalists from it, at some point later in their sports careers, would test positive for performance-enhancing drugs, including Lewis himself. I mean, this is like, if you look at competitive cycling, there are races where the actual official recognized winner today came in like 13th because mm-hmm. everyone ahead of them tested positive for steroids at some point. Right. None of which had happened yet. Like at that point, Johnson had just set a record at Worlds and was going to the Olympics and, you know, everyone was excited to see how he would do. <laughs> and presumably it was that record at Worlds that they're referencing here. Then there's the starting pistol, which is really more of a cannon. <laughs> coming from what I thought was a camera. Yeah, the design of the cannon is so distinctive, I think it must be a reference to something, but... It looks like the kinds of huge TV broadcast cameras they have at these events. That's true. But anyway, uh, the Cubile is the only competitor unbothered by the cannon fire, saying, it's because I don't have ears. (laughs) The botched start from everyone else is another weirdly prophetic moment. There was a West German decathlete, Jürgen Hingsen, who made three false starts in the 100-meter sprint and was disqualified. Uh, And Johnson's start on his race, where he set the record, was shockingly good. Like, he just was immediately way ahead of everyone else and stayed way ahead of everyone else for the duration of the race. Well, he wasn't racing against Pudu. True. At least this time, Pudu's not naked. Oh, thank God. (laughs) Small mercies, right? I want to point out while we're here... And another weirdly prescient thing, this is such a small detail, but if you look behind Judo's head when he's in the commentator booth, you'll see there's a, a, you know, a sort of poster on the wall behind him and the text on it is just squiggles. But at the top, it has a circle, an X, a triangle and a square, which are exactly the buttons on the face of a PlayStation controller. But this was years and years and years before the PlayStation was made and that controller was designed. And the people who came up with those buttons have like a whole logic for how they came up with those specific shapes. So it's weird that this exact arrangement of geometric forms shows up right here. Doesn't mean anything. It's just weird. It's eerie. There's something cursed about this whole episode. The second heat is all mobile suits with the double Zeta as the favorite. Uh, and it flashes a peace or victory sign that the Zagok tries to emulate but can't because it doesn't have hands. At the start of the race, the double Zeta fires its beam weapon, shoots backward into a wall, and is disqualified. Uh, waiting at the finish, Alina's skirt flies up, uncomfortable, when the beam goes by. In contrast to the Ziyong, who comments, my skirt doesn't move. And seems kind of sad about it. A mobile suit on treads treats the double Zeta as a piece of trash, picking it up with tongs and putting it into the basket on its back while singing a little tune. I couldn't get the words for the tune exactly or find anything specific about the history of trash pickup in Japan that it might be referencing, but the basket on the back and the tongs is clearly a thing. I found an article about some performance artists now who call themselves trash pickup samurai and collect trash in just this way while dressed in kimono and brandishing their tongs like swords. 
And while it isn't the same as the tune the mobile suit sings, garbage trucks do play a little tune in Japan so people can hear them coming. There are a lot of signs and banners in the backgrounds for this short, most of them pretty normal for sports competition. Hashire, hashire, run, run. Fasto, zion, which could be fast zion or first zion. Probably first. Moeru tokon, or passionate fighting spirit. Go, go, Gundamu. <laughs> Self explanatory. <laughs> Fighto da Gundamu. Fight Gundam. Yori hayaku, yori takaku, zeta Gundamu. Uh, the first ri is blocked out, but I'm pretty certain. And that one means faster, higher, zeta Gundam. But there are a couple that I want to talk about separately, including one that appears in this second track race. There's a sign behind that reads Yakero Gundamu, which at first glance means burn Gundam, which is humorous given how the Double Zeta's beam blast launches it backwards, which is actually the first of two visual gags that play off of how those weapons would affect mobile suits in an environment with Earth-like gravity. But does it have another meaning? I found a few different ones, but the most likely in context is to be jealous or envious. Hmm... Take that, Gundam. The next event is effectively shot put. Uh, first with the Marisai throwing a ball, mobile suit, and it's really moving. The announcers even wonder if it could be a world record, but then the ball shoots its beam upward, which pushes it straight into the ground. <clears throat> uh, point of order, it's a mobile pod, not a mobile suit, and it is equipped with a conventional uh, warhead, not a beam weapon. I think if you look at the animation, it's animated like a beam. Hmm. I think you'll find that canonically... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you all have no idea how close to getting ugly that got. (laughs) I assume what they're doing here with the shot put is a reference to BB Senshi, which was one of the earliest lines of SD Gunpla. They're called BB Senshi because they all came with, as a gimmick, a little like BB launcher and targets that you could shoot at. And I think the shot put is like shooting the BBs. Cute. The next competitor is the Zeta, and the Zeta is throwing a Haro. The suit yells, Zeta Gundam, Nagemas, which means Zeta Gundam, throwing! And is just like when the pilots yell, Name of mobile suit, Ikimas, <laughs> when they're launching. I loved this part because the Haro looks so intense. It's so determined. Its facial expression, the position of its little arms. Gambate Haro. I'm going for it. And Haro lands among a bunch of Xeon soldiers in the stands, including McVeigh, who is busy polishing a vase. Of course. Before the Zeta throws, there's a moment that we couldn't quite figure out where um, it's standing there and it turns all red as a little musical cue plays and the Argama flies by in the background. There's definitely a joke here, but it completely eluded the two of us. Right. The way that it's animated turning red is like when characters get embarrassed. I feel like it also happens when characters eat something that is too spicy, but (laughs) (laughs) this is clearly embarrassment. Yeah. And yet nothing has happened to... Like, explain why it would be embarrassed. And the Argama flying by in the background and the musical... Like, I don't... I don't don't know know. what's going on here. 
And then there is another odd connection to the Olympics, uh, because men's shot put wound up being extremely exciting that year. World champion Swiss athlete Werner Gunther set an Olympic record on his very first throw. East German athlete Ulf Timmermann broke that record, each of his throws going further than the last. Then American Randy Barnes broke that record by 10 centimeters. So in one day, the record was broken five times by three different people. Then Timmerman, on his last throw, broke Barnes's record by eight centimeters to win the gold medal. <laughs> wow. So they chanced upon a very exciting sport. Uh, finally, there was something funny about the visuals when one of the judges holds up a flag indicating a foul and disqualification for the Zeta. It's a red flag, and at least in our copy of these shorts, the kanji it shows do not make a word. The first appears to be the kanji for arrow, followed by kaku. I searched and searched, and no such word or combination of words appeared anywhere. But the kanji for arrow is very, very close to the kanji shitsu for loss, error, or fault. And shitsu plus kaku, shikaku, means disqualification. So the question is, was this a problem with the transfer quality or the resolution of the version we're watching, or did someone make a mistake in the original and no one noticed or bothered to fix it? <laughs> My money is on mistake in the original. Then we get the survival marathon, not a real thing, which has yet another joke about the Zeong, where it yells, I can't run, and Shar yells back at it, fly, you idiot. <laughs> I'm getting the impression the Zeong is considered a very funny mobile suit. Well, have you looked at it? <laughs> I love the Zeong. <laughs> but it is a very funny mobile suit. Also, the legs are just for show is one of the best lines <laughs> in Gundam of all time. I mean, that whole sequence, that's also the scene where Char says, you're very frank. I don't appreciate it. <laughs> good memories. I love uh, First Gundam. First Gundam was so good. See, this is the value of SD. It, it harkens back to those beloved moments of the past. Now we have to talk about the unpleasantly sexist scenes, which they lumped together. I don't know if that's good or bad. Both of which find some humor in it, since they pick events, rhythmic gymnastics and swimming, that give them an excuse to show scantily clad women and girls. But with their little SD potato bodies and competing <laughs> alongside similarly dressed mobile suits, it's much more funny than it is titillating. Yeah. I mean, at least Puru isn't naked. <laughs> Puru isn't even in this part. Nope. It is, you know, they did go with younger Sela rather than adult Sela, which, you know, it's not great. Um, and they've got Tem Ray and I think Xeon... Admiral Konskan leering over her as she does her routine. Well, they're the most prominent. I would like to say I love that she uses a haro as a prop. Yes. A ball is one of the traditional props for rhythmic gymnastics. So replacing the ball with specifically a haro, pretty cool. Uh, yeah, Temre and the guy you just mentioned are shown just the two of them. But then there's a pan of a massive crowd, which includes Slegger, Gotten, I think I recognized General Revel, Cameron Bloom, Young Cats and Let's. Kika's there too. The Wait, was she? Mm -hmm. I didn't see a single girl in that crowd. Okay, I guess there was one girl. <laughs> uh, 
The Black Tri-Stars are there. Char comments that his little sister has grown up to be very beautiful. Well, and then he like looks at her in a particularly provocative pose and his heart explodes out of his chest and a rainbow explodes out of his heart and more hearts explode out of the rainbow. And basically all of the comments they make about her are about her appearance, not her gymnastics. Yeah, so I think this has to be at least partly a reference to the third of the first Gundam compilation movies, which inserted a scene of Sela bathing, which was like hugely popular with the fans, hugely influential in the like anime world at the time. Mm. There are all of these stories about people going to see the movie over and over and over again, mostly to watch that scene God, about that... people sneaking in cameras and the the theater just like filling up with flashbulbs when that scene started. Oh, my God. That just reminds me of um, what's the American one that video stores kept having to replace the tape because <laughs> people like people would wear out the tape, rewinding and rewatching the scene of the. I don't know if she was actually a teenager in the movie. She's a teenager getting out of the swimming pool. I know this story, but I don't remember what movie it is. Yeah, I cannot remember which of the various, I want to say, 80s teen movies or early 90s. We're going to hear from like a thousand people who are all going to know exactly what we're talking about. I mean, I know somewhere rattling around in my brain is the name of this movie. Could it be Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Yeah, because that's her in the bikini. It's Fast Times at Ridgemont High which came out in 1982, which was the exact same year that the third of the Gundam compilation movies came out. <laughs> Weird coincidence. Also earlier than I thought that movie came out. Her score is displayed on, I think it's a Hambrabi? And at first looks like zero because the display only has room for one digit and two digits after the decimal. And then the Hambrabi displays the one for a score of 10.0 on its hand. And I assume the display gag is because for a long time, gymnastics judges simply did not award perfect 10s, ever. It was only a little bit before this short came out that they started awarding them. And it was obviously a really big deal in the gymnastics community. And there were complaints, both in the lead up to and after the 88 Olympics, that too many perfect 10s were being awarded even on obviously flawed routines, because fans loved it and found it very exciting. Then there's the poor Aga guy, also in a leotard and with bows on its head, using its tentacly arms in place of the rhythmic gymnastics ribbons. Which was so cool. I thought it was great. Yeah, I wish they had let that performance go. Uh, and then gets booed and buried in thrown miscellany, including an umbrella, food, getta, shirts, Baseballs, cans, baseball gloves, notebooks, a rice pot, a ghost, a fridge, an ink bottle, books, a piano, guitars, haros, tea kettles, a sliding door, and a number of repeats. Char throws spoons, which was confusing until I learned that there is an idiom to throw a spoon or to throw spoons, sajio nageru, uh, which means to give up as hopeless or to throw in the towel. At the women's freestyle swimming event, the Hyakushiki is trying to get the swimmers to wear regulation bathing suits, and L complains, how will they see our figures, and slaps the Hyakushiki hard enough that it leaves a red handprint and solicits a classic, at this point, Tsuyoi Onna, or 
what a strong woman <laughs> from the Hyakushiki. The humor in this scene is all from the Dom mobile suit, the tropical Dom, as they call it, wearing a bikini with a flower on its head, sitting on a beach chair under an umbrella, putting on what appears to be tanning oil and declaring, rust is my body's enemy. <laughs> I want to point out that the tropical Dom is not a Dom and a uh, dedicated Gundam fan might think, oh, this is probably a Dom tropical test type, which was introduced in MSV. Are you kidding me? But no, it is not. It's the wrong colors and the wrong shape. A Gundam fan might also think, oh, maybe it's a Dom Tropen, which is tropical in German. Um, but no, the Dom Tropen was not introduced until several years later. This is a tropical Dom, which is a SD Gundam exclusive, originally introduced as, I believe, a eraser toy that a child could put on the end of their pencil after getting out of a gashapon machine. Oh gosh, remember those? I had completely forgotten that was a thing, like troll dolls and other little like toys you could put on the end of your pencil. If you had been a child in Japan in the early 80s, you could have had mobile suits on your pencil, including this tropical Dom. I would have loved gachapon. The Dom is the only mobile suit in the event, and when she cannonballs into the pool, it causes huge waves to engulf the whole arena. The other swimmers, the spectators, and the commentators. The Dom then walks along the bottom of the pool to victory. I can't make up my mind how I feel about this joke, because it's like, this is basically a fat joke, right? Mm. Except it's a mobile suit, and so it's not. And I, I don't know if that makes it better, and I kind of think it might. And it's not even really a mobile suit that looks fat. Like, it's bigger than humans. Obviously. Yeah, it's just, it's just Dom-shaped. That's the shape that Doms are. I did wonder if some of the gags, both the gymnastics one and this one, were about how people fixate on female Olympians' appearance in a mm -hmm. lot of sports and the extent to which... If you're pretty, you're going to wind up on TV more, whether you are, like, a winning athlete or not. <laughs> Which clearly, whoever made this cartoon doesn't have a problem with, but... <laughs> it could also be kind of a reference, at least to this one, to the very funny bit in Double Zeta, where Elle and Rue are imprisoned, and Elle is talking about using her feminine wiles to try to escape. Then we check in on the marathon, and the group has reached a rocky obstacle. Everyone has a different way through... Shooting, punching, jackhammering, digging with a pickaxe. Bright is chanting as he digs. He says, Nanda iwa, konna iwa, which means what rock? This rock. <laughs> I found that same construction online. Nanda something, konna something. So I assume it's some kind of work chant, but I couldn't find a proper definition or explanation. Also funny that the Xeon meatheads uh, decide to punch their way through. These are Rambaral and Dozelzabi, just big manly men punching the rock in a manly fashion. And every time the Zaku tries to shoot its way through, it gets backblasted back out <laughs> of the tunnel. Cut to Kai in the triple jump. This cut shows an old television, and the video on the TV goes staticky as it reverses, which made me wonder about things like instant replay home VHS recordings of TV broadcasts, and whether they taped any Olympic events for judging purposes. Don't have an answer to any of that. <laughs> Miharu and her siblings appear to be watching from the stands. 
I say appear because the image is sort of hazy. I'm not certain if they're meant to be real or ghosts. Uh, and then mid-jump, Kai almost loses his shorts. Ha 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 ha. Uh, then lands face first, ha 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 ha, uh, and still sets a world record. I did not find any stories of similar mishaps. Yeah, this just feels like sort of cartoony Hanna-Barbera silliness. I will point out, Miharu and the kids are in the next pan, which is about as realistic as SD ever gets. So I think they're there. We can believe in the good ending where Miharu makes it out alive. I don't have many additional comments on the short beyond what I covered in the recap. Uh, depending on your perspective, Degwin's comment that this whole competition has been pointless is funny or dark or both. <laughs> That's how a lot of people feel about the Olympics. Yeah. The Gundam accidentally destroys another colony, which has been a recurring theme in the SDs. I confess, I, I mean, the... SD short is not explicitly taking place in Seoul. At least I don't think so. I didn't notice any landmarks or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But you'd think someone would stop for a moment to think about, hmm, in this Japanese-made cartoon, should we utterly destroy a Korean city? Maybe not. Maybe let's not. Yeah, let's just assume that this takes place in some sort of imaginary, non-existent place. Does that make it better? <laughs> marginally. I will say they reuse the footage from the beginning of First Gundam depicting the colony drop. And uh, various Gundam fans have put a lot of time and effort into trying to identify what particular city that colony is dropping onto. And the conclusion seems to be that it doesn't map onto any real world city. It's just sort of generically a modern city with high-rises. One last thing, which is the laughter that appears over the stadium after the marathoners crash land is written as the katakana wa with a line indicating a long vowel sound. So wa, uh, which is the onomatopoeia for a sudden loud laugh. Wa, 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 wa. I think that's enough of that. Also, either the news coverage about the upcoming Olympic sports was very thorough, or whoever wrote this was a huge sports fan. Or I'm reading way too much into it, but that's kind of our deal. I mean, it's hard to imagine that they would sit down and say, hey, we're going to make this short all about the Olympics, if they weren't into the Olympics. And I imagine, given the timing of it, that they were trying to capitalize on Olympic fever, which Probably they were feeling a little of themselves. And now an update from Nina, providing an overview on what has happened in the world. There wasn't much of a gap between the release of Shar's counterattack and the release of War in the Pocket. Just 12 months, from March 12, 1988 to March 25, 1989, though because of its format, War in the Pocket had an unusual release schedule. One episode a month for six months, with the last episode releasing on August 25th, 1989. Only a year lapsed, but what an eventful year. In the world, much of what I've already described of the 1980s, in episodes 3.1 and 4.1, was ongoing. The Cold War, the Troubles in Ireland, the Iran-Iraq War, 
and the seemingly endless global cycle of elections, coups, civil wars, civil unrest, natural and industrial disasters, and terrorism. Japan's asset price bubble was stalling but had not yet popped, and there was a persistent tension with the United States over the balance of trade. Month by month, in March, the Seikan Tunnel, connecting the islands of Hokkaido and Honshu, and until very recently, the longest tunnel in the world, was opened, and the Tokyo Dome completed. The Great Seto Bridge opened the next month. April also saw the simultaneous release of the Studio Ghibli animated films My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies, and the opening of the 1988 World Expo in Brisbane, Australia. The expo is worth talking about in somewhat greater detail. Its theme was leisure in the age of technology, and there was a great deal of Japanese participation. Not only a national pavilion, and the Japan Pavilion was the third largest and most expensive of all the pavilions, but also pavilions by Saitama Prefecture, as the sister state to Queensland, and Kobe, as the sister city to Brisbane, and by Japanese companies like Fujitsu. Japan's pavilions showcased what was, at the time, cutting-edge HDTV, computer and video games, the latest scanners and sensors, and married these technological displays with demonstrations and interactive events exhibiting and promoting traditional Japanese arts and leisure activities. A pond and garden were constructed in front of the main pavilion, both of which were gifted to the city of Brisbane and relocated to the Botanic Garden after the expo. And, not specific to Japan but still of interest, the Swiss pavilion had exhibits of very early text-based internet, and NASA also participated with an outdoor display of models of the space shuttle and spacecraft from the Apollo program. In June, the Asahi Shimbun first broke the recruit scandal, an insider trading and corruption scandal that may need its own research piece either this season or the next. Nakaya Yasuko, whose husband had been a member of the self-defense force and had died in 1968, was informed by the local SDF branch in 1971 that they'd begun proceedings to have her husband enshrined at a local Shinto shrine. She told them on no uncertain terms that she did not want that done, only to receive a notice from the shrine in question listing her husband among those enshrined there, prompting her to sue. After 15 years and two lower court decisions in her favor, in June of 1988, Japan's Supreme Court overturned the lower court rulings and found in favor of the government providing legal protection for government participation in the Shinto enshrinement of deceased persons, even against their families' wishes or religious beliefs. In the United States, NASA scientist James Hansen testified to the Senate that not only was global warming occurring, it was caused by human activity. He was one of the first environmentalists to sound the alarm. Over the summer, anime film Akira was released, and a ceasefire was declared in the Iran-Iraq War. In September, the Olympics opened in Seoul. And on September 19th, Emperor Hirohito collapsed, but did not die, beginning a long period of public restraint, partial mourning, well wishes, and very public monitoring of the emperor's health. Newspapers published daily updates of pretty detailed medical information. In October... The TV anime Anpanman premiered, and Super Mario Bros. 3 was released for the Famicom. 
Then in November, the first transatlantic optical fiber telephone cable was completed, essential for easier and more stable internet communication between North America and Europe. George H.W. Bush won the U.S. presidential election, and the Soviet shuttle Buran made its first and last orbital space flight. December saw the commemoration of the first-ever World AIDS Day, the historic peak for the Nikkei 225 index, and the resignation of Japan's Minister of Finance, Miyazawa Kiichi, over his part in the recruit scandal. Just one week into the new year, Emperor Hirohito died and was succeeded by his son Akihito. The Showa era ended and the Heisei era began. The state funeral on February 24th was attended by more foreign dignitaries than any other in history. And his illness and death brought up a lot of memories and introspection about World War II and Japanese imperialism. The reticence to discussing the emperor's complicity and responsibility weakened with his illness and death. He wasn't there to be hurt or offended. Though even in these conditions, those who discussed the emperor negatively, even in the mildest terms, were met with threats and intimidation by right-wing groups. The mayor of Hiroshima was attacked and badly wounded for, quote, suggesting that his majesty should share some of the blame for the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. And the mayor of Nagasaki not only had to have 24-7 police protection after right-wingers called for divine retribution against him, but his local party organization insisted on firing him rather than allowing him to resign. In February, singer Misora Hibari gave what would be her last public performance. She's someone who, I get the impression, every Japanese person would know who she is, but I had never heard of her. A singer, actress, and cultural icon, she was born in 1937 and died in 1989 at only 52 years of age. June, so slightly outside the scope of this piece, but that shouldn't stand in the way of a good story. Considered something of a child prodigy, her full-time professional career began at age 12, though she'd performed in concerts and competitions for years before that. Prolific, she recorded over 1,200 songs and appeared in 166 movies. At age 19, she was the highest-earning entertainer in all of Japan and would remain so for some time. Even outside of Japan, she experienced some renown. She was profiled in the New York Times in 1957 and appeared in the New York Times obituaries section when she died. She was awarded the Medal of Honor for, quote, contributions to music and for improving the welfare of the public, and was the first woman to receive the People's Honor Award, conferred posthumously for, quote, giving the public hope and encouragement after World War II. Since her career spanned so much of the Showa era, in particular the post-war period, she was heavily associated with the era itself, she was emblematic. Even though Showa was technically over already, her passing was felt to be another end of an era. And this superstardom and popularity have continued. Her records still sell. And as of 2019, her record sales are over 100 million. Her songs have been and continue to be covered by artists from all over the world. There are still annual TV and radio tributes to her on the anniversary of her death. 
And in 2019, a Vocaloid was modeled on one of her songs and performed with a 3D render of Misora herself. That same month, the Soviet-Afghan war ended when the last Soviet column left, after occupying the country since 1979. And the first 24 Global Positioning System satellites were placed into orbit. Take a moment to think about that. Imagine the time before GPS. In the last couple weeks before the first part of War in the Pocket was released, Time Inc. and Warner Communications merged to become Time Warner. Tim Berners-Lee created the proposal document, which is described as the blueprint for the World Wide Web. And Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischman announced that they had achieved cold fusion at the University of Utah. Looming on the horizon are more resignations brought on by the recruit scandal. The, as I call it in my head, rising sun panic response in the U.S. brought on by Japanese purchases of high-profile U.S. companies and real estate, the bursting of the bubble and subsequent stagnation, increasing economic competition from other countries in Asia, an aging society, and still more social change. But that's all for next time. For now, I'm curious to see how our last bubble economy Gundam show portrays UC-80. Like Hirokito's passing and the evolving discourse around World War II, Will Tomino's absence free this group of creators to give a different perspective on the one-year war? And now, some additional background on the history of the OVA format. Gundam 0080, War in the Pocket, is the first OVA we've covered, and so makes the perfect time to talk about just what an OVA is. What's their history? Why are they made? OVA stands for Originaru Video Animation, Original Video Animation, a term that was used interchangeably with OAV, Original Animation Video, for a while, but due to some confusion with other terms that use the AV acronym, Adult Video and Audio Video, OVA became the standard term over time. These works were made for direct-to-video release rather than for airing on TV or being released in theaters first. But the format does not have the same negative connotations that direct-to-video does in the United States. Originating in the 1980s, OVAs emerged out of a confluence of factors. The booming anime industry, the greater number of homes that owned VCRs for playing tapes, growth of the video rental industry, and a bubble economy that meant production companies were flush with cash. The timing of these trends is likely why the golden age of OVAs is considered to be from the late 1980s into the early 1990s. Bubble economy cash meant that the production companies were more willing to take a chance on a couple of episodes of an original property, to the tune of $100,000 to $300,000 per episode in 2012 US dollars. Still cheaper than making and marketing a full season of a series or a film for release to theaters which is why so many early OVAs were indie, experimental, or new standalone properties. Sometimes releasing an OVA was a way to test a new idea, and if it was popular, then it would be expanded into a series or film. It was also a format that lent itself well to spin-offs of pre-existing properties. The video rental industry was essential to OVAs, not only because production companies would sell physical tapes to rental stores, but because physical media was very expensive 
One source gave a price of 10,000 yen for a single new tape that in the case of an OVA might have only one or two episodes on it. Today, 10,000 yen is $87. Adjusted for inflation? Yikes. I went and did the inflation adjustments, and yikes is right. A single episode of War in the Pocket on VHS, Laserdisc, or Betamax sold for 4,500 yen in 1989. Converted into US dollars based on the historical exchange rates for March 1989 and adjusted for inflation, you would be looking at a price tag of roughly $80 per episode. The yen did weaken significantly versus the dollar around the midpoint of 0080's run, so by the time episode 6 came out, you would need to drop a comparatively minuscule $70 per episode. That works out to $450 to buy all of War in the Pocket as it released. And of course, that doesn't count shipping or the cost of a plane ticket to Japan. Now, let's say you wanted to purchase SD Gundam Mark I on Laserdisc or Betamax in May of 1988. There was a VHS version, but it was intended only for rental. Now, remember that it's roughly the same amount of content, three short episodes that collectively add up to about 26 minutes of animation versus one 26-minute episode. And remember that you had probably already seen the first two-thirds in theaters along with Char's Counterattack. In May of 88, the yen was even stronger versus the dollar, and the initial release of SD Gundam Mark I went for a whopping 7,500 yen. Adjusted for inflation, you would need to drop more than $140 for SD Gundam Mark I. Few people were going to pay that for an entirely unknown work that they'd never had the opportunity to see before. But the hope was that if someone rented an OVA and enjoyed it, they'd buy their own copy. Bandai even had their own rental system, though that wasn't an unusual move for media companies at that time. Their video rental division didn't last, but direct-to-video production encompassed not just OVAs, but also live action, episodes of TV programs, and special cuts and scene compilations from other Bandai shows. Several sources cited Oshii Mamoru's Dalos, produced and released by Bandai in 1983, as the first OVA. The one mentions a Tezuka Osamu project, The Green Cat, begun that same year but never completed or released. Megazone 2-3 in 1985 was considered a breakout hit for the genre, and was followed by other famous titles, most of which I haven't seen but know by name and reputation. There was Angel's Egg in 1985, Bubblegum Crisis in 1987, Gunbuster, and, one I have seen, the mockumentary Otaku no Video. Tenchimuyo, the series one source credited as popularizing the harem anime genre, began as an OVA. For any of you unfamiliar with the genre, the article sums it up as a bunch of beautiful ladies fall in love with some nerd, and that's about as succinct a way to sum it up as could be. There were certainly famous OVAs later on, like Giant Robo, but such hits were fewer and farther between after the early 90s. This all explains why a production company might make OVAs, but why would a creative team want to? And what are some characteristics of the format? In general, the OVA format gives creators a lot more freedom than creating for TV or film. Episodes can run any length, from just a couple of minutes to movie length, and can even vary within a series. There can also be any number of episodes, from just one to, in the longest OVA ever made, over 150. 
That would be Legend of the Galactic Heroes, a series quite popular with a lot of Gundam fans, which had 110 main episodes and 52 spin-off episodes. From the creator perspective, this meant that an OVA could be exactly as long as you thought it needed to be. No need for filler episodes to pad out a TV season, no need to cut out storylines to get an under two-hour film. Give the story as much time as your vision requires and no more. And because there was no premiere date to make or broadcast schedule to keep, episodes could release on an irregular schedule whenever they were ready. This might be monthly or every few months, or there might even be year-long gaps between episodes, and frequently these gaps were not consistent in length. Of course, this also meant that many OVAs were never completed. The lack of timing constraints combined with higher per-episode budgets than TV shows meant that the animation quality was often superior to that of TV animation. The team could take their time over elaborate visuals. And the lack of advertisers and sponsors, plus the lack of restrictions that come with producing content for broadcast television or to meet a particular film rating, meant that there were many fewer content restrictions generally. This is why a lot of the earliest OVAs were pornographic. But even as the ratio of porn to not porn changed, OVAs still tended to be more sexually explicit, more violent, and more gory than their TV and film animation counterparts. Finally, there was a sense that OVAs were made for a more targeted audience. Rather than being mass market oriented, they were oriented to hardcore otaku, mega fans, collectors, people who read about series in niche magazines, who traded tapes, the kinds of people who show up in otaku no video, as a matter of fact. It will be interesting to see how all of this applies to War in the Pocket. Do we notice a difference in animation quality? Is there more explicit content? Does it feel as though it's aimed at an older, more hardcore Gundam fan? I, for one, am eager to find out. Next time on episode 5.2, The Gems of Navarone, we research and discuss episode 1 of War in the Pocket and direct to podcast. Future school. You will see the sign of Zagok. Tell them what they want to hear. They just keep getting younger. A very eventful year. New kids on the block. Tell us your parents are divorcing without saying your parents are divorcing. A red-headed Onesan type. And game over, man. Can't you see that you are sweet? Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us. Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for SD Olympics was Olivia by Hyson. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com.
You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. With the Omicron variant of COVID-19 currently surging in New York and around the world, I can no longer in good conscience encourage you to share your wrong Gundam opinions. So stay safe and mutter your wrong Gundam opinions to yourself, or your most patient roommate, family member, pet, gunpla model, or kitchen appliance. Maybe something like, Giant robot battles are not cool, okay? They only fight like this when they're very stressed. We won't hear you, but that's probably for the best, don't you think? This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion was muttered at us by Penetier. Thank you, Penetier. And that's about as... That makes you sound a lot more sinister than you are. <laughs> Alright, this is test number three for audio recording setup. Uh, intro, outro, season five, episode one. How much of marriage is just being like, I'm sorry about... <laughs> <laughs> a lot it turns out um okay where were we i was talking about the mobile suits um that's what i love about mobile suit pilots we get older they stay the same age